It's about that time of year again. Uh, soon, if not already, our stockings will be hung by the chimney with care or wherever you hang them in Florida, since few of us have chimneys. Uh, but the gifts will be wrapped and beneath the tree. Uh, that one guy in your neighborhood with way too many inflatable Christmas decorations will have them waving in the night wind. Uh, and many again will once uh, again take up the cause for what I call irrelevant Christmas fights. Uh, these are the people that will vigorously snap back, Merry Christmas, whenever greeted with a hearty Happy Holidays. Uh, they'll proudly post on social media that Jesus is the reason for the season as if he is absent in every other season. Uh, now I joke about this, sort of, uh, because over the last several years, many have been fighting the so-called war on Christmas, taking up arms against those who would seek to purge Christmas from its Christmas Christian roots, uh, maybe to expunge the very name of Christ himself. Because perhaps the biggest attack on Christianity and on Christmas is that dastardly Merry Xmas, right? Maybe not. You see, there was once a time where I also would cringe whenever I heard that four-letter word, Xmas, thinking, you know, they're trying to take Christ out of Christmas. They're crossing out the birthday boy's name. But I, I thought it was one more kind of ploy for godless, godless heathens to rip baby Jesus out of the manger and cross his name out with a big black X. But you might be surprised to find out that's not actually the case. Now, as many of you know, the Bible was not written in good old King Jimmy English. Uh, the New Testament was actually written in Greek. And the Greek word for Christ is Christos, which begins with the Greek letter key, which looks in English like a letter X. And so using an X as an abbreviation for Christ is actually a historical Christian tradition that dates all the way back to the 3rd and 4th centuries. You see, not only is it not humanist atheists that are to blame for the substitution of X for Christ, but we actually find that this is a tradition dating back to some of the earliest records we have of Christian history. And so armed with this knowledge, I put together a series for the next four weeks to do my part to keep the X in Xmas. Uh, I've entitled this series, People of the X, to expose and explode some of the misconceptions that we have about Christmas. And so each week we'll be looking at one area or one avenue of Jesus' life and ministry that was offensive to those around him, much like maybe the X in Xmas has been offensive to us. And to look at his life and ministry in its totality in conjunction with just a part of the Christmas story. I recognize that maybe this information, even seeing Xmas in this way, is kind of, again, cringe-inducing for you. I recognize that this might be a challenge. You know, old habits die hard, and I think ingrained thought processes die harder. But I also think it's important to note that Jesus was no stranger to offending people when it came to these ingrained thoughts and practices. There are things that Jesus often said and did that offended a people around him. And most often, more often than not, those people that he offended were religious people. His opponents, his disciples, even his family, on a number of occasions throughout the Gospels, would say things that carry about the same tone of Jesus. You, you just can't do those kinds of things. You just can't say stuff like that. And so as with every time, other time of year as Christians, it should be our goal to be more like Jesus, to be people of the Christ, to be people of the X. And so as we look at the Christmas, the first Christmas, uh, maybe anew this morning, I want to begin by looking at the shepherds. 
you might know the story of the shepherds. Maybe you grew up in church or you've been in church around Christmas time. Maybe you heard it and learned it from Linus's big monologue in a Peanuts Christmas special. But Luke tells us this about the night that Jesus was born. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. He says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. We hear a story like this. It's often easy to transpose uh, this kind of picture-perfect Christmas, this image that we have in art and in decorations, back onto that very first Christmas. We look at Christmas around us and we see that Christmas is clean, Christmas is sanitary, Christmas is hygienic. We picture these shepherds as kind of pleasant, hard-working, clean-cut young men out playing harps in a field like David. They look perfectly in place as angel-faced precious moment figurines or right at home in our ceramic nativity sets. And it might even be, you know, it, we might even talk about how odd it was that the angels would first announce the coming of this long-awaited, this promised Messiah to a group of lowly shepherds watching their flocks by night. We might talk about it, but to actually stop and think about the implications of what that means is not something we often practice. The shepherds hung out with sheep. I know that's groundbreaking information for you this morning. But they led sheep. They carried their sheep. They, they mended sheep. They laid down with their sheep. And when you lie down with your sheep, you sometimes lie down in what the sheep lay down if you catch my drift. Shepherds were dirty and smelly. They were living out in the fields nearby. On top of that, they were often regarded as dishonest and untrustworthy. They were viewed as among the lowliest of the occupations because their work made it impossible for them to live up to the ritual purity required, the standards of the law. And so you can imagine the shock and concern when a group of shepherds showed up on the doorstep of the stable. I kind of pondered that idea with the birth of my three boys that we've had. You know, we've had lots of guests coming in and wanting to hold the baby, meet the baby. And you always say, like, if, you, if you wouldn't mind, you know, just wash your hands or sanitize them before you hold the, the newborn. Now imagine 10 guys from your local homeless camp shuffling into your hospital room saying, hey, do you mind if we hold your baby? You'd call security. You see, to many, if not most, the shepherds were simply unacceptable people. And as we read and understand all of these things about the shepherds, the first hearers of the birth of Jesus himself, this God come down, I think the question comes to mind, what kind of Messiah, what kind of king is announced to unacceptable people? You see, the story of these shepherds really points to a deeper reality of who Jesus is and what he really came to do. Because when you ask the question, what kind of Messiah is announced to unacceptable people? I think the answer is the kind of Messiah who would later socialize with unacceptable people. Jesus, throughout his life, socialized with people whom the religious elite around him simply deemed unacceptable. 
One of the primary insults that was hurled at Jesus throughout his ministry is that he hung out and ate with tax collectors and prostitutes and just other general class of sinners. And Matthew 11, they even go as far as to call him a friend of sinners. And unlike the later claims that they make up about Jesus, this one isn't unfounded. In Mark chapter 2, verse 13, we see one of the instances. It says, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus here in this instance calls above all, among all people a tax collector to be one of his disciples. A tax collector would have been a collaborator, a collaborator with Rome, you know, Rome's wingman. A government-sanctioned thief and a betrayer of his people. He calls this kind of man to be a part of his inner circle. And then, if that's not bad enough, he went into his house to hang out with all of his sinner friends. I find verse 15 especially interesting. It says, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. This is not just an isolated event. These were the people that Jesus made a habit of surrounding himself with. On another occasion, Jesus was at a Pharisee's house in Luke chapter 7. When Luke tells us this, he says, A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, you know what that means, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. We read this scene, maybe you've read it before, but I think we can often miss kind of the intimate and embarrassing nature of the scenario. I, this is the kind of thing that the tabloids would exploit. The situation that if you had a public relations advisor, he'd be saying to you, Sir, this this is not a situation that you want to be involved with. This is a story that your opponent would sling against you in your bid for a presidential run. And yet Jesus, instead, takes note of this woman's repentance and forgives her sin. And I think on one level, this, this doesn't bother us as much as it should. Think of it this way. I, I've, we've been in the process here of looking for a new youth minister since March, and Imagine if after all this long process of looking, we hire this new youth minister and he, he comes to town and instead of having office hours, he's hanging out with exotic dancers all day. It reminds me of the old movies where you have a young girl from the streets who all of a sudden learns that her heritage is a princess and she must learn what that means. And there's always some older lady with a British accent, I don't know why she always has a British accent, but she does, to tell her all the things that she are doing that are unbecoming of a lady. Hanging out with sinners was unbecoming of a Messiah. 
there were certain criteria that Messiahs uphold and certain things that Messiahs must never do, but Jesus wasn't primarily interested in all of that. And so on one level, this doesn't bother us as much as it should that Jesus socialized with these unacceptable people. But I think on another level, it can also bother us too much. Because maybe you ask the question, well, how do we, how do we draw the line? How do you find the balance between association and acceptance? What if people think that by hanging out with that person, I'm approving of the, their actions and, and their lifestyle? But what if we cared less about drawing lines and more about loving people? Please understand, I am preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you because I'm bad at this. I'm bad about hanging out with the people that are safe and saved and acceptable. And I wrestle with the implications of what that means and what this looks like to hang out with unacceptable people. But look at what Jesus says in the moment that he spends with these people. Those whom others called unacceptable. When people ask him why he does this, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. To heal the sick, Jesus had to be with the sick. And to call the unrighteous, you kind of have to be around the unrighteous. See, here's the point, and I don't want you to miss this this morning. Jesus socialized with unacceptable people because Jesus came to save unacceptable people. And whether we categorize ourselves as modern-day equivalents to tax collectors and sinners or not, the truth of the matter is that without Jesus, none of us are acceptable to God. We are all unacceptable people. And so when the Pharisees, I find this ironic, tried to discredit Jesus and his ministry using that classic attack of guilty by association, they unwittingly affirmed the very thing that he came to do, to bear our guilt by associating with us. And so what does this mean for us as we seek to live out this tenet of Christ's ministry, as we seek to live out the X of Xmas, the Christ of Christmas? Well, I've entitled this sermon today, Accept. Who is on your accept list? Who are your unacceptable people? I will show love to everyone except these people. I will communicate the message of the gospel of Jesus to everyone except your rude neighbor, the person on the opposite end of the political aisle, gay people, drug addicts, prisoners, a patient of yours, a teacher. Remember, those first unacceptable people, shepherds, this is how their story finishes. Verse 17 of Luke 2 says, When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which was just what they had been told. The very first unacceptable people of Jesus' story became the very first people to proclaim that story. And so this morning, my hope 
is that you will continue to wrestle with me, through with me, what it looks like to, to love the unlovable and to accept the unacceptable as Jesus did, so that they might also come to experience his salvation. As we come to a time of invitation, or call it what you will, a response time, I found this quote from an author named Jonathan Merritt. He says, A Jesus who loves us even when we don't love back, a Savior who pursues us even as we run away, a Christ who offers fellowship to all indiscriminately, without condition, no strings attached, that would be a Jesus who is better than we've imagined. And that would be good news. And so maybe this morning your response is one of two options. Maybe you are the one feeling this morning unacceptable. And if that's where you're at, thinking there's no way that Jesus could love me, could associate with me, could save me, then I want you to know that there is nothing that the blood of Jesus can't overcome if you let it. That through Jesus, when you accept him as Lord and Savior of your life, you are acceptable and accepted and loved. For others of us, maybe more of the vast majority of us in this room, who've already experienced his acceptance, then we also now have to respond with the responsibility of what has been done for us. Let's be a little bit more like Jesus starting this Christmas. Let's keep the X in Xmas. Let's pray. Father God, as we come before the Christmas story, we do so every year and we read about the angels and the shepherds and the wise men and, and all the different elements of Jesus' birth. And in the midst of that, we see snapshots, glimpses of what Jesus, who he will grow to be. What kind of Messiah, what kind of Savior he will eventually become. And God, as we see these snapshots, we see this morning that Jesus is a Messiah who loved and associated with unacceptable people. To show the religious people around him what God's love truly looked like. So God, I pray that we would model that, not just this Christmas season, but throughout our lives. Looking at who Jesus was and seeking to be like him. To love people despite their past, despite their presence, and knowing that you love them. That you're calling them to yourself to experience Jesus in the way that we have been blessed to experience him. God, I pray this morning that you would give us the courage this Christmas season to love those who others deem unacceptable. To extend the message of grace and truth to those who need to hear it most. Help us be bold through your spirit that resides within us. Help us to be courageous in our witness of you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.